0: Welcome to Pushback, I'm Aaron Maté. Joining me is Brian Jackson. He is a multi-instrumentalist who, in the 1970s, put out a string of legendary albums with his musical partner, Gil Scott Heron. He has a brand new album out on the label, Jazz is Dead. Brian Jackson, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Aaron. I want to start with your run with Gil Scott Heron in the 1970s. Just a very prolific era for you and putting out albums that really had a huge influence on music. How do you look back on that time now?
1: Well, it's it's kind of still a a bit amazing to me um, because I, none of us, we we didn't do it for that. We didn't do it for fame and, you know, recognition. We basically did it because it was something that there were things that there were issues that we felt needed to be, needed to be addressed. Um, And, we were basically looking for the maximum impact, the 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 way that we could uh, bring these these issues to the fore, and um, we had been looking at. Uh, we we were both you know in the TV generation, and one thing that we had noticed um, about television and about uh, then what was the advertising uh, mecca Madison Avenue was that they were using um, popular idioms musical idioms to uh to sell their products and you know it occurred to us um that maybe and since they were our musical idioms to begin with we we, we thought maybe uh it might be a good idea if we would use those same um uh same type of uh of formats to uh, to sell revolutionary thought
0: all right, so then this leads me to one of your most popular songs, The Revolution Will Not Be Televised. This was basically a satire of the kind of commercialism you're, you're speaking about, if I have it right. Uh, talk to us about that song and how it came
1: about. Oh, you have it exactly right. As I told you, um, we were members of the uh, uh, the television uh, generation, uh, and so we were co- constantly inundated by commercials, by ads for, uh, for products that uh, had dubious usefulness and uh, as we got older we we began to understand that uh, that this was the the purpose of of uh, of ads and and of Madison Avenue and of uh, the engineering of consent as i later learned that it was called um to uh, to, to to make us believe that we were incomplete without the, these these products that were constantly be invented invented just for us to buy them and for no other reason than for us to give our money away um and you know this is this is occurred it occurred to us at some point the uh, the absurdity of it um and the, the the negative effects that it actually had on on our lives and on our, our consciousness um and you know like a lot of things that um, that were very serious to us we made jokes about it uh you know, that they, as the old folks would say, laugh to keep from crying. So, you know, the revolution will, will not be televised was basically a series of vignettes from popular, uh, from popular ads at the time. Um, and it was inspired in part, um, by the, um, by the last poets, when the when, when the revolution comes, um, you know, and, um, you, you know, with the whole idea was basically to make fun of all of these products and, and to, if we were able to do it in a way where the absurdity of these products and the, the absurdity of, of making people believe that they actually needed these things in order for their lives to be, to be complete or for them to be happy or, or fulfilled in some way. Um, it was our hope, you know, that, that by conglomerating them, putting them all together in this fashion, uh, we might be able to, to point out the, the goal of, uh, of Madison Amity, the goal of, of, of these, uh, the, these companies that, that tried to kind of um, propagate these, uh, these types of beliefs.
2: The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by Xerox in four parts without commercial interruptions. The revolution will not show you pictures of Nixon blowing a bugle and leading a charge by John Mitchell, General Abrams, and Spiro Agnew to eat hog moths confiscated from a Harlem sanctuary. The revolution will not be televised.
0: And just as you mocked or satirized uh, Madison Avenue with The Revolution Will Not Be Televised, with your other uh, music, is it fair to say that you were also challenging the engineering of consent when it comes to politics? You know, engineering consent for uh, war, for policies of the government uh, that were to the detriment of the people.
1: Absolutely. Um, you know, we, we also, I mean, maybe not in so in 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 jest, but we also um, touched on subjects like the uh, um, the nuclear power plants that were proliferating all, all around the world uh when we wrote uh when we, when we recorded uh we almost lost detroit About uh, um, the immigration problem the, 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 um, in, at the Mexican border, um, that was it was a song about that, you know. And um, there was uh, the Watergate Blues, where we this was definitely <laughs> a mocking um, poem about uh, about the, uh, the the resignation of, of Richard Nixon and, and the and the, and the uh, Watergate scandal that, that led up to it. You know so we we had a a lot of uh, a lot of songs like that that uh and and you know during during our our shows Gil would always start out uh with a monologue um about some of the things that were happening and presented them in in ways that you know might make you chuckle, but they were very serious and deadly serious in some cases.
0: Having seen him perform just on video um, and live once in the late 1990s, it, it struck me that Gil Scott-Heron was a pretty funny guy. He had a great sense of humor.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think he kind of wanted, uh, secretly wanted to be kind of like Richard Pryor, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he got pretty close, to be honest. Um, sometimes,
0: and it was Pryor who got you guys on Saturday Night, Saturday night Live, right?
1: we were big fans of his. We were huge fans of his. We had no idea that he knew anything about us, but, uh, yeah, you know, it was, it was a prerequisite in fact for, for him, uh, appearing, um, because they, they kind of pushed back against his choice. Um, and you know, he basically had to come, come down to telling them, look, everybody who a guest does a guest appearance on this show gets to choose their musical artist. And I expect to be treated no differently. And, uh, you know, with that, they understood that if he wasn't allowed to choose his musical artist, that he wouldn't, he wouldn't do it. His latest album, Gil Scott-Heron. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Gil scott Hare and sisters in South Africa, we call it brother, and
2: when we say... What's the word? We'd like to have y'all
1: help us out, stay in Johannesburg. So uh, Johannesburg, when Gil and I went to Lincoln University, there were two students in the school who were were both South African. One of them was a Black South African named Zola, and there was another South African there named Derek, and he was a colored South African. And um, their perspectives of South Africa were in many ways, um, the same. In most ways, the same. But because they were they were treated differently and regarded differently uh, in terms of social status, uh, you know, they did have slightly slightly different perspectives. But the, the good news was that they were united. Um, they uh, they both felt that that things needed to be changed. Neither one of them were, were comfortable enough to think that things should uh, should remain the same. Um, but it was through them. That we began to to learn some of the, the, the what was going on in South Africa that we didn't hear on the news, um, until way later, until way later. But we, we had a perspective on it that really uh, woke us up. And and at one point, um, Zola, the black South African, showed us pictures of some of uh, some of the folks, some maybe some of his relatives and other other folks uh, in in South Africa. Um, other black South Africans there, and I couldn't. Uh, it it just it hit me really hard because I, I realized that a lot of those people looked like some of my relatives, and uh, you know that kind of struck me kind of that that struck me hard. Um, it became more personal, and maybe this was one of the first times that I that I realized how connected we are in life and uh, on this planet. Uh, but it uh, it definitely hit home in a, in a uh, very personal way and uh, Gill and I both actually um, could recognize people that looked like cousins and, you know and that, and that sort of thing and it just some, it's something that remained with us and, and at some point we had written a song about it and recorded it and, and that was the song Johannesburg. Mm-hmm. Heard, heard yeah. out here. a funny story about that was um in 1998 when gill and i had reunited for for a brief tour uh we were invited to south africa and uh, to play in johannesburg and so you know we're, i'm thinking this is a great moment you know this is the moment that we're all gonna reunite this was uh after um apartheid and uh and um Nelson Mandela had been um, had been elected president and um you know we thought this would be a triumphant moment for us to sing this song and uh, we did sing it and when there's a part in the song that says what's the word and the response it's call and response and the, and the the response is johannesburg so when we get to that um to that section you know gil says what's the word and i'm thinking you know i'm, I'm like i'm almost Tears are almost welling up in my eyes, you know, thinking about this resounding um, response that's going to come. And I, yeah, I could, bar- I could barely see out in the audience, but what I, what I could see was just like a lot of confusion. People were like, well, what is the word? And um, <laughs> a few people said, you know, had the right response, but most of the people in the audience were just kind of looking at each other like, well, what are we supposed to say? You know, he didn't tell us. And um, I, after the show, I spoke to one of the one of the people who was in, involved in it, and uh, I said, "What what happened? Um, you know, did you guys not like that song? Or you know, what what happened? I mean, it seemed like it it fell flat at that point." And uh, you, you know, he said, "Well, the thing is, you, the thing you have to realize is that when this song came out, it was banned here. So unless you were really like one of those people who was willing to put your life on the line, you know, like to to, to get this kind of music, um, you wouldn't have heard it."
0: Amazing. Amazing. Um, Going back to Pieces of a Man in 1971, that album came out the same year as What's Going On by Marvin Gaye, another very socially conscious album. But if I understand it right, you actually recorded that before What's Going On came out. So was that, was so, I'm just curious about how you know how that set off your your journey to to recording music and and to raising consciousness and did you feel a part of a of a culture of of increased consciousness in music back then
1: oh yeah i mean you know it w- it was already starting to happen um Stevie wonder had already put out where i'm coming from um you know where, where he where he definitely uh, voiced some some anti uh some anti vietnam war sentiments um uh, you know, the last poets had had already done their album. Uh, Amiri Baraka had already done an album. Uh, there was a there were a lot of things that were that were going on in the in the seventies. I mean, you know, um, the the Panthers were were strong. Um, you know, the the uh, the the, the, um, the Angela Davis and and uh, and George Jackson and, and so many things that had already uh transpired and uh you know it was something that um we we felt a part of uh just by being who we were and and being where we were it, that being in new york city um and going to um a black university you know all of those things kind of came together and and, uh, and definitely i believe shaped the what we would have what we ultimately wanted to do and wanted to um to be about as as writers,
0: and you mentioned attending Lincoln University with Gil Scott Heron. Can you talk about meeting him and how your musical partnership was formed there?
1: Oh well, it uh, it it came about as a result of um, both of us spending a lot of time in the um, in the music rooms. They used to have um, little practice rooms. Uh, there with little spinet pianos inside and this is where um, I would spend a lot of time composing and, and practicing. Um, and apparently Gil was was doing the same thing, although neither one of us knew each other. But one day I was playing and I got a, someone knocked on the door and it turned out to be um, a gentleman by the name of Victor Brown. He was a senior. And um, he said, hey, I'm doing a talent show here at Lincoln and uh, there's this song that I want to do. It's called um, "God Bless the Child." Do you know it? And I said, "Well, yeah, you know, I do know it." And I started to play this. The, uh, the I kind of picked out the, the the version that that I thought he was talking about, which was the Billie Holiday version. But in in fact, he stopped me and he said, "But do you know the Blood, Sweat, and Tears version?" And I was like overjoyed because that was actually the version that I knew the best. And so I started to play it, and he said. This is great. This is really great. Can you do this for me on, on the talent show? And I, I said, yeah, sure. You're no problem. And I said, you're just doing one song? He says, no, I'm, I'm doing another song. I'm doing um, a, an original by, um, by this guy, this friend of mine um, who is in the next room. And I said, well, can I hear it? Maybe I could play that one too, you know? He says, well, no, he's going to play it. But no, I'll introduce you anyway. So he goes goes away for a minute and he comes back. And uh, here comes this long, lanky guy, lanky guy with his huge afro, you know. And uh, there's not much to say, <laughs> surprisingly. <laughs> and uh, you know, he just kind of mumbles, like I'm Gil," you know. And he sits down and he, you know, he plays the um, the piano. And the song that he played was uh, was one that actually hadn't been originally released, uh, but I think it's now, uh, one of the bonus tracks on, on the re-release of, uh, Free Will, which was the the second album that Gil and I recorded together for Flying Dutchman. Um, it's called Peace. And what impressed me more than anything was, um, the depth of the, uh, of the lyrics, you know, the, the, the maturity of the lyrics and, um, I, I just you know it, it was it was a beautiful song it had it had a lot of colors in it and it had a lot of emotion and for a guy who was I had to check you know I, I asked him like how are you you know <laughs> he was like maybe nineteen I think at the time and um, it was just amazing to me that uh, that that someone this young could have this much insight um, into um, in, into life you know and it, it be- we became close friends after that, um, I immediately, after hearing Peace, I played one of my songs, one of the songs I had been working on, um, and I said, hey, man, you think you, could, you, know, you think you could do something with this? And he asked me, he, I played it for him, and he asked me something that kind of became our, our MO from, from that point on. Um, he said, well, what were you feeling or, or thinking about, or what would you like to convey with this song? And, uh, you know, that's something that I always felt that the music should should be able to convey without me having to say so. But if I was going to have somebody write lyrics, it made perfect sense that, um, that he'd know that we were on the same page, even if he did feel those things. So we always had a conversation about um, what the song would mean before he began to write. But once I told him, and basically, what I told him was that I said, "Well, I, this is kind of like a song I wrote for the ancestors. You know, it's kind of a song that I wrote that pays tribute to the people who came before us. You know, who struggled on our behalf." And um, he asked me to play it a couple more times. Meanwhile, writing in his uh, in his notebook, his little orange notebook that he always wrote lyrics in and, and poems in in pen, um, you know, which kind Of cheeky if you think about it, but yeah, uh, you know, he certainly didn't make many e- erasures and didn't have to. So, um, that song ended up being called A Toast to the People, and we recorded it on our uh first um Arista album called Um First Minute of a New Day Midnight Band.
0: I'm curious how Arista, after you signed to them, dealt with you guys because you're not just a you know a politically conscious band, sonically you're really pushing boundaries and you're, and you're bringing a lot of jazz into your music. It's hard to categorize the music that you and Gil Scott Heron did. It's not just soul. It's not just R and B. There's, there's all sorts of influences and jazz. I mean, you're a jazz musician. So how did the label deal with the kind of musical direction that you were pushing the band in?
1: (laughs) Excuse me. I'm glad you said, I'm glad you said that. I'm glad you asked me that because um. I've always felt that Clive Davis, was, who was the, uh, the head of Arista, who, the founder of Arista, um, got really excited by the fact that um, The Bottle, um, which was on our previous album, Winter in America, the one before we, we signed with Arista, before Gil signed with Arista. <laughs>
2: His 95, he drink full time, now he's hanging in a bottle. You see that black boy over there running scared? This old man got a problem, and it's a bad one, cause he done. Putting off damn near everything. This old woman wearing rainbow bottom.
1: I think that he he felt that that could be a one a fantastic direction and um and one that would that would pay dividends down the road uh but that was a one off uh you know the bottle it was interesting and it was fun to do and you know there would probably there were going to be others like that but it wasn't our it wasn't our main focus at the at that time um but i think that Clive always felt that if he could get just one more bottle out of us, you know, that he could make it, and that he could, he could make things pop. Um, But we were, we were resistant to that, uh, you know, because we wanted to do what we wanted to do. We weren't um, banking on any formulas, uh, uh, you you know, or or even thinking about doing things that we had done before. We were interested in progressing and moving forward musically um, and conceptually. Um, So that, that definitely rubbed, Clive the wrong way, and I honest. I also believe that um, you know Clive recognized that Gil was more of a um, a blues singer, a bluesologist, as he called himself, and that if he could just separate him from from these other uh, notions he had, um, that mainly the, the things that that you know, that I brought to the table, that uh, you know that he would actually probably be able to to propel Gil into into another um, uh, atmosphere of celebrity.
0: And Gil obviously didn't want that.
1: No, Gil didn't want that. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, Gil was, was very happy to, uh, to continue doing what we, what we were doing. Um, and so we were both pretty uh, unified as far as that was concerned, as far as what we were doing artistically. We didn't want him or we didn't want Clive or anybody else to, uh, to dictate to us what, what we were going to do. So every time we would present an album, to Clive. We would sit in his office and he'd sit, sit listening very pensively. And at the end of it, he would say, well, that's really good stuff. You know, it's really good music. I I really like it, but I don't hear a hit. (laughs) And we would always laugh because, you know, we knew that was coming. Um, But we, in ourselves, we felt that maybe if he had known the community uh, that we were, uh, were, were, a part of and and more or less addressing uh, that it, it could be a hit, um, but not within the standard not not within the standard confines of of you know of what he as a, a record company exec in the, in the '70s uh, thought could be a hit, and we felt that you know a lot of things could have been done maybe a a, a bit differently in terms of marketing and who it was marketed to, etc. But you know, it is what it it is what it is. In the words of a famous American dictator,
0: you uh, so you had the album "Winter in America," but the song "Winter in America" didn't appear until the next album, the follow up album, if I have that right. Can you talk about that song? It's a it's a personal favorite of of mine.
1: Oh, I'm I'm glad. Well, you know, we I still perform it, in fact, and um, I always say that uh, people will come up to me. From time to time, and, and say, uh, wow, it's amazing, you guys. How did you know? Um, you guys are prophetic. You know, you, it's fifty years ago, and and you, you knew what was going to happen. And and I always say, no, that's that's not actually what it, what it was. We were talking about what was happening then, and there's no way in hell that this should still be relevant. You know, and uh, it it really kind of it it kind of really angers me that it is so relevant. Um it's it's very sad it's very sad in my opinion
2: from the indians welcome to pilgrims and to the buffalo that once ruled a pain, like the vultures circling beneath the dark clouds looking for the rain yeah been looking for the right just like the city the stagger on the coastline living in a nation it just can't take much more like the forest they buried beneath the highway never had a chance to grow Well, they never had a chance to go And now it's winter It seems like winter in America It's the time when all of the hills Done and been killed And been betrayed Something wrong with everybody I know when It seems like winter in America. The truth is there ain't nobody fighting because well, nobody knows what you say. Brother said it's so in America the Constitution a noble piece of paper free society struggle
0: but the dying rain. Um, fast forwarding a couple albums to another favorite of mine 95 south all the places I've been if I've read that that's a tribute to the activist Fanny Lou Hamer.
1: that is correct. That is correct. Um, You know, Fannie Lou Hamer um, was one of the people who was who was responsible for for much of the protests, and uh, you know, again, still relevant in terms of voting rights uh, today.
2: And people who sacrifice their lives and work all through their lives to do something for us are at least worth a song and a thought every now and then. So for Sister Fannie Lou Hamer, the song is called "95 South." all of the places we've been.
1: That we, you know, the the the, the allusion to to ninety five South is that uh, we spent a lot of time on that road. It's a road that goes um, all the way from, I think, the, from the the from below even the border the borders of Florida all the way up to um, to New England, and uh, it's something that we, you know, it was it, a lot of our experiences were based along that road. Let's put it that way. Uh, from from New York to to um, to Pennsylvania Lincoln University in Philly um, to to Baltimore where, where we spent some time uh, Gil Gil uh, picked up his uh, his master's degree there um, to Washington D C to um, to Virginia where uh, we we also uh, spent some time and uh, you know it's just uh, one of the things that uh, one of the 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 memories that that we have about uh, our time um, working together.
0: And one more song I want to ask you about, because I just, I love the groove of the song so much. Willing, off of the album 1980.
1: Yeah. Um, Again, uh, you know, that was a song that we were doing um, in the, I guess, in the 80s. Uh, Well, it wasn't exactly the 80s, but it was kind of the late, the, the late 70s and um you know just like anyone who uh, listens to music we were affected by some of the things that were that were going on and um you know I, I was a big fan actually I was a huge fan of Nile rogers and some of the some of the grooves that he had laid down with um with chic and it just occurred to me that i I had wanted to try something like that and um that that song kind of lent itself to to that kind of treatment um, and so I, I experimented musically with it, but of course, uh, the message was, um, was, all, was still the same um, or the content um, was still uh, relevant and and uh, it, it, it wasn't in, in other words, what I'm trying to say is that uh, the music was um, was was what it was because we, our goal was to to attract people. To, to make people listen to more, more deeply to the lyrics. Um, and so we, we incorporated as many different elements as we felt comfortable with um, to, to kind of draw people in to listen to the music. And, and Willing uh, was a song that I felt demanded, you know, a bit of attention.
2: We've all heard so many conflicting words about life, whether wrong or right, or how you gotta be working hard, and it ain't no easy job to survive. Just keep it alive. We've all come to think of ourselves at links in a chain, so much to gain. We are the ones. That tie our fathers to our sons, don't you know? That's how we grow. What my life really means is that the songs that I sing are just pieces of a dream that I've been building. And we can make a stand in here, I'm reaching out my hand. Cause I know damn well we can if we are willing to hang. But we gotta be
1: The whole concept of it is that um, you can be you can be for a lot of things, you know. You you can be for um, voting rights, you know. You 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 can be for um, Black Lives Matter. You can be for a lot of things. Um, you can be for change. You can. We we all say that we we want things to change, but when it, at the end of the day. What are you willing to, you know, to do? And what are you willing to, what are you willing to sacrifice? What are you willing to, to, to give up, you know? And the, like I said, the operative word there is willing. And that's basically what the song says, that we can make a stand. You know, I'm, I'm reaching out to you. I'm reaching out my hand. Um But, and you know that we can, if you are willing, but you have to be willing. And, you know, that's, that's really the key. I mean, we all talk, but. Where's the, you know, where's the commitment that go that goes along with that?
0: I uh, I play that song to motivate myself, whether it's politically or, or just personally, and it's it's really, I can just, it's really effective for me. Um, so thank you for thank you for making that song on top of your entire catalog. Um, so 1980 is your last album with Gil Scott Heron. H- how did your partnership come to an end?
1: Um, well, it's it's still still a bit. Um, Kind of confusing, you know, to me. Um, I, I would say that it basically happened as a result of misunderstanding. Um, one of the things that happened with me musically was that I, I continued to, um, to grow and, uh, I, I was writing, I probably was writing more, uh, than, uh, than I, I could have. Possibly put into the albums that Gil and I were, were were doing, and and so was Gil. Gil was also writing a lot of mo- a lot more music on his own, and um, uh, I had had thought of the idea of possibly um, doing a solo doing a solo project. At the same time, um, we were kind of um, we had been on the road for for several years and. I needed a break. I definitely was was really sick of uh of the road. And I thought, well, this would be maybe a good time. We had a little break and I thought maybe this would be a good time for us to to take a break. I was surprised though that that Gil was was more resistant to it than I had expected. Um and uh but I finally I finally convinced him, you know, let's take a a 3 to 6 month break. Um because we we had been on the road so much that Neither of us had written any any songs um, we, we didn't have access to uh, to a piano or anything else so we, we hadn't written any songs either separately or or together uh, and it seemed like this would have been a good time to kind of gather up our our energies and, and our resources and kind of get back on track um, but like i said to to my dismay um you know Gil didn't seem particularly uh, ready to do that in fact he kind of panicked when i told him about it and um but i convinced him that i i needed this for my mental health and so i went up to to california i went to oakland to uh, to visit the the woman that i was i was seeing at the time and um uh within uh, a couple of months i i heard from a friend of mine down in la who had said um that uh he that he would see me when when I was played at the Roxy but nobody had told me uh, about a gig at the Roxy uh in Los Angeles and uh so you know if that was the way I found out about it then obviously I I I wasn't my name wasn't on the bill and I I hadn't been invited so that was uh, that was one of the things um that was more like the end of it but I kind of I just think that um one conversation that that i had uh, you know with gil um prior to that was that um the music he felt was kind of moving moving away and uh, like i said i i felt that i was growing musically and uh you know maybe maybe it got to the point where he didn't feel comfortable you know with the kind of music that that we were doing anymore and uh, that that really upset me i mean you know i felt like well, I'm really not doing my job, you know, because my main, my only purpose was to to provide, um, my my goal was to to provide Gil with uh, the, the 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 background that that, uh, that he needed to get his to get his message across, and if he felt that, that that wasn't happening, then I I felt like I had been failing, and so I took a step back as the music director, and um, again he he also misinterpreted that and uh you know just one thing kind of led to the other, and I think there were a couple of other people whispering in his ear um you know saying that uh you know i'm taking i'm taking the wrong path i'm going you know going the wrong way with him, and you know that i'm cost, costing him money or whatever it is you know that uh you know people at the record company were telling him and and what have you uh so yeah it kind of it kind of broke up i think under those under those circumstances. And uh, yeah, it was, it was sad, you know, and I'm, I'm sure in retrospect now, I'm sure that drugs probably had um, a part to do with that also.
0: So it, it's well known that in the last decades of his life, Gil Scott Heron had a really serious uh, addiction problem. I'm wondering, going back to early, songs early in your run together, uh, The Bottle, which we talked about, Home Is Where the Hatred Is. Those are songs about addiction. Was Gil writing at that point then from from personal experience?
1: No, not at all. Not as far as I know, Um, you know, we hung out all the time. So no, I mean, did he have any experience with heroin? No. Did he have any experience with angel dust? Well, we we tried it a couple of times and, you know, that's, that's why we wrote that song because it was kind of a warning. And we got out, we got out more or less unscathed, but we had a lot of friends who, who didn't. And, uh, and including one of them, a suicide, um, you know, and so we, we knew this this was bad stuff, and, and we weren't we weren't really trying to have that, you know. And then the bottle, a song about um, a song about addiction to alcohol. Uh, well, we had seen that firsthand in our lives, and you know, all around us. I mean, you know, alcoholism is a a serious disease, and it affects a lot of people in this in this country and in the world. Um, so yeah, you know, but um, none of those things that actually hit home personally. Um, at that time. And this is why I said before, Gil was able to, to bring a, a kind of a maturity and a kind of experience to to some of the songs that he wrote without actually having had those experiences, without having actually lived those lives.
0: And so when did it become clear to you that he was dealing with, uh, with serious uh, addiction issues?
1: Well, I don't think it really ever occurred to me until, you know, a couple of friends of mine told me, you know, I saw Gil on the, uh, on the A train in, in New York. um, And he looked pretty bad. He looked like he was on drugs. He looked like he was on heroin. He looked, you know, he was disheveled and, you know, uh, looking confused and and this. And I still, I still didn't believe it because to me, that was all just hearsay. Um, But in 94, uh, Gil invited me to sub for um, his pianist at the time um, because she she hadn't been able to make it, and so I um, I, I did. And this was at SOBs in New York, um, and he didn't make the, the sound check, so I didn't see him there. But um, and he didn't actually make the beginning of the show either. Um, but when he did, when he finally did um, appear, we were like we were in the midst of playing um, a song. And uh, one of the members of the band said, he's, he's here now, you know, he's coming. And um, I looked over and I, I didn't see anybody, you know, and uh, then he stepped up on the stage and I, I was, I, when I finally saw him, I was, I was in shock. I mean, he's a guy who's three years older than me and he looked like my grandfather. And it was just, i yeah, to this day, you know, I, I remember the, the feeling that my heart just kind of sank into my, into my stomach. Um, because at that particular moment, I realized that, that all of the things that, that people had told me, well, most of the things that people had told me were true.
0: When's the last time you spoke?
1: Um, the last time we spoke was, uh, 2007. I had an interesting conversation with a mutual friend of Gil's and mine and I had told him the difficulty, you know, how painful it was to, uh, to, to deal with, to deal with Gil. And I had really tried to, um, to make some overtures to him. Uh, but we, we had some other, you know, business issues that were, that were really pressing that needed to talk, to be, to be discussed. And, um, you know, he never seemed to be willing to talk about that. And most of our, convers- a lot of our conversations were about, um, people who had wronged him, you know, and him being the victim of, of these, these people who, you know, basically they were, Relatives and and friends, good friends of his, who I knew, that would have never tried to hurt him, and uh, you know, um, I actually became one of those people at some point, um, in his mind, uh, and I uh, you know trying to keep the, the the lines of communication open for for those reasons, um, but uh, I had a conversation with a friend of uh, with a mutual friend of ours, as I said, um, and I told him. You know how difficult it was to, and painful it was to to maintain this relationship with him, and I'll never forget what he told me. He said, "You know, you know the difference between, um, between a a, a dead friend and a, and a friend who is an addict." And I said, "No, what is it? You know?" And he said, "Um, he said, well, your your dead friend, you know, they're dead. They're in the ground. You know, you have to move on. You know, you have no choice." He says, "With a friend who is an addict, you know they're dead, but you're carrying them around on your back." And I thought about that, and I said, "I, I have to say goodbye to my dead friend." And um, I went to a show that he was doing at, uh, at, um, at Sob's <laughs> again, and uh, I, I went down after in between sets, and I, I, I said to him, you know, I. He said, why don't you sit in, you know? And I said, uh, it's okay. I I think I'm going to leave. But I I just wanted to say to you that I love you and goodbye. And that was like 2007. Yeah. You know, he passed away in 2011. I hadn't seen him since then.
0: Did you go to his funeral at the Riverside Church?
1: No. And the people asked me why. It would have been extremely difficult i'm really glad that i didn't go you know based on what some people had told me uh was was happening there um i think kind of turned into a maybe a bit of a circus i think kanye showed up and performed so i was i'm glad i didn't go but i i explained to people at the time that i had already said goodbye and which is the truth um and i didn't feel like I wanted to say goodbye again. I didn't feel that I needed to say goodbye again because the the goodbye that I said, you know, was, um, you know, was based on, well, what I, what I explained to you before
0: I was there and I can confirm that Kanye West, uh, performed and he, he performed a song that samples you guys, one of many, uh, samples of your work. What has that been like for you, being so influential for for the generation that came after you, the after your run with Gil Scott Heron, the the hip hop generation?
1: Oh, it's it's amazing, um, it's humbling, um, it's exciting, um, and uh, you, you know, ultimately, um, I I think that uh, you, you know you you never know the impact that you that you will have on anyone, um, and the fact that that the The work that we have done has impacted multiple generations um it's just something it's it's unfathomable you know you can't even concede that you're going to affect the person sitting next to you um but for this for this music to to still to still have a life and and to still um mean something to people um i mean there's really no way to get to get my head around it you know but I am thankful.
0: And so your new album out on Jazz is Dead, you did that in collaboration with Adrian Young and Ali- Alicia Heid Mohammed.
1: something that I call the tradition all right and the tradition started in my mind with the griot the African tradition of maintaining uh, the very the very essence of um, of African culture of course when we were scattered to the winds in the in the African diaspora that job title kind of disappeared and it was up to us to take on the responsibility of maintaining that culture.
2: <clears throat> yeah, that shit, man. That's,
1: That's a crazy track, man. I love it. <laughs> is the this is the, the role that Gil and I saw ourselves in. And in the such we were able to identify others who we could see were on that were on that same path. Working with Adrian and working with, with Ali, I was able to, to see that same Dedication and that same sense of um, of purpose, that keeping of the tradition.
0: This, I believe, is your first al- album as a as a band leader in twenty years, um, and you play a lot of different instruments on this. Uh, Talk to us about how, how this album came about and and how how you created it.
1: So um, I had been re, uh, I had been contacted by some of uh, Adrian and Ali, one of Adrian and Ali's um, representatives, about doing a show at the Highland uh, the Highland Lodge in Los Angeles, and um, you know I was all about it. I was I was very happy because I hadn't been to Los Angeles, but there was another component, and that was um, that they were trying to to reach out to some older musicians to see if they might be interested in doing some recording with them and it just so happened that i was the first one that they you know that they had been able to to, to get to do that and um you know i i don't think any of us knew and and as they tell me they really didn't know what direction anything was, was going to go into you know it was just something that they were were doing as an experiment and see how it how it worked out. Um, uh, so I, I did the show and uh, we went into the studio and uh they had had started on some some ideas you know some basic ideas and when I came in, I don't know it just kind of clicked with me um what they what they were doing i I didn't you know I had no concept really uh and neither did they and this is the this is the thing that I think was was really the um, the pivotal uh or the pivotal point for for all of us that we just allowed the music to tell us. Um, what it wanted to do. And we listened, we served it. Um, so I was listening to one of these ideas and uh, I I saw in the, in the distance, I saw um, a case that looked very familiar to me. It was an alto flute. And uh, I said, Hey man, can I, can I, can I play this? And, you know, he said, Adrian said, of course, you know, so I, I put the thing together and I started doing a couple of little Motifs and and lines on uh, on it, and within five minutes we just both we just all looked at each other and said, hey, "Let's just hey, is the mic set up? Let's go." And uh, pretty much it was like that, you know. Uh, whatever was was being done, it was it was completely natural. Um, there was no, I mean, reaching for the the mini moog I ended up playing mini moog on on the uh, on the album. I ended up playing. Fender Rhodes on the album. I ended up playing alto flute and C flute on the album, and I probably would have done a lot more. But uh, you know, it was just um, it was fantastic. Adrian's studio is uh, is state of the art. It's uh, it's really a beautiful place to work, and uh, you know, it just the three of us kind of didn't even really have to talk. I mean, we actually didn't really talk that much. Um, We talked a lot after, but um, while we were recording, it was just kind of it just flowed very very easily. I was I was really shocked, and I think we all were were pleasantly surprised at how smoothly it it went.
0: Since you mentioned it, can I ask you what the Fender Rhodes has meant to your sound, to your repertoire o- over these many decades of uh, being a musician?
1: Well, you know, I've I've come to actually be associated with uh, with the Fender Rhodes, which is something I'm very happy about because. Um, I love the fender roads um i um there are so many things that I can that I, that I I feel would not have been the same um if there were not a fender roads songs like um peace go with your brother songs like the bottle off there, everything his old woman's wedding ring for a bottle it goes. Don't you think it's a crime. how time after time. All of the albums on the uh, on the current on the current uh, the current album J I D double O I mean, you know, there are so many songs where the, the Fender Rhodes adds an element that absolutely no other instrument could. And uh, for this reason. I mean, it expresses something that's deep in, inside of, of, of my soul and something that's inside of my spirit that, uh, you know, we, we have a connection. We have a connection and, and it works. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very happy for that instrument.
0: And you have a side project that you've done, which is a podcast named after your first album with Gil Scott Heron, Pieces of a Man. It's a series of conversations between you and a death row prisoner named Keith Lamar how did that come about and, and what are you trying to do with that podcast
1: during the um the during the um the the virus and and uh the uh, confinement uh my wife was um just stopped browsing articles about you know what the confinement means to different people and and how they were able to to survive it and she ran across a, an article in mother jones um by by Keith um which I thought was incredibly generous for um, a man who had been in solitary confinement at that time for twenty-seven years, now twenty-eight. Um, for for him to be able to for him to want to share uh, his his uh, ideas and you know the, the things that the ways that he's come up with to deal with uh, confinement with people who had only been in confinement for like a few months, you know, I thought that was incredibly generous. And uh, it, he's a great writer, also. And um, she became interested, though, after his article in his situation, uh, which he describes eloquently in his book *Condemned*, uh, which I recommend that uh, everyone read. Um, and once, once she read it, you know, she was uh, she read it in about 24 hours, and she she handed the book to me and said, "You have to read this now." You know, and I, I put it off for a little while, I must admit, I put it off for a couple of weeks. But when I got into it, it was the same. I I spent the next twenty four hours reading the book and, and when I finished, I put it down and I said, We have to do something. Now, I'm not anywhere near um a, an influencer on on Instagram or anything of the of the sort, but I do have a few people you know, who follow me. And I, I like to think that many of the people that I connect with um, on social media are people who have some of the sim- same concerns as I do. And I thought if I were able to to uh, expand the uh, consciousness of, uh, about Keith and, and about his situation, um, that I thought maybe I would, you know, maybe some people would, would become interested and maybe even people with a higher profile um, might also uh, take interest, um, briefly, uh, Keith, as a, as a teenager, um, a poor teenager in Cleveland, Ohio, um, took to selling drugs as a way to, to survive. And, um, he, uh, began getting threats from, from other, from other people who were involved in the drug in the drug in dealing, uh, in, in Cleveland to the point that he felt that he probably would need some protection. He bought himself a gun and uh not too long after that he was ambushed uh by by two people um and uh one of th- one of whom had a gun and and shot him twice in his leg and and Keith was able to fire off a couple of shots at this at this person as well. Um in the hospital both take both at the hospital Keith survived but the the other person um died and he was 19 and um he was uh sentenced to uh you know to I think it was 18 minimum 18 years or or something like that uh in prison which he actually had no problem with you know he he knew that he had uh killed this person and he was prepared To pay, you know, he didn't. He didn't try to cop a a plea deal or anything like that. You know, he said, "I killed this person." He believed in the justice system. You know, and um, he did his time. But uh, after two years, uh, the 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 place that he was in, which was called Lucasville State Prison, uh, there was a riot. There was a well known riot that that occurred there, uh, and it was based on. Uh, the refusal of some of the inmates to, to take a, uh, to some type of um, um, uh, an an injection, some type of a a vaccine or something. I'm not exactly sure. I I don't remember, but they were opposed to it because of some of the ingredients, which in during, in their religion, they were not allowed to, uh, to take. Um, And they were going to be forced to take it. And, uh, And an uprising occurred kind of based around, around that. And, um, Keith was out in the yard when it all happened and, uh, seeing that, uh, you know, everything was getting trashed, uh, he ran back into, to, uh, to save his, his belongings, his personal property, because, you know, he, during that time, you know, there were going to be people going into cells and, and, you know, stealing people's things and, and destroying them as well. Um, so he ran back in and, uh, long story short, because he was in. He was considered among the suspects uh, of people who were uh, who had killed, as it turns out, eleven people. Um, one of whom was a one of, uh, a guard, a prison guard, um, and there were quite. A, uh, I would say f- between f- I think it was about five uh, inmates who were charged with these murders. Uh, Keith being one of them, um, and all of them except for Keith copped a plea deal in exchange for uh, for preferential treatment uh, several of them will move to to other lower security prisons um, uh, reduced reduced time um, you know those, this this kind of thing and Keith was the only one who said look I didn't do it um there's there's no way I'm gonna confess to, you know because when you when you cop a plea deal you have to say you did it and uh you know he was not willing to say that he did it because he didn't and uh not really understanding at uh, 22 or um or 23 how the justice system works he was penalized for that wh- because he was had he was going to have to be taken to trial he was going to have to you know tax the uh the justice system if you will and actually have a have a trial which he expected would would prove his innocence um only one problem is That uh, the the prosecution withheld the testimony of a lot of the other uh, inmates, um, the other witnesses, Um, the evidence uh, over 22,000 pieces of evidence were all trampled on and uh, contaminated by the state police who came in to break up the, the, uh, the riot. And so without the testimony and without the evidence, the, uh, the, the physical evidence, um, yeah, he was, uh, he was convicted. He was convicted for the for the death of uh, several of those of those people, not the not the guard. Um but the confessions and the the uh the testimony of the witnesses would have been enough to exonerate him. However, they were never allowed in the court by the prosecution. Um after that, uh he after pleading plead, uh pleading uh, you know for uh an appeal after after doing several appeals, his um actually his uh legal remedies have um have all been exhausted. Um, he was uh, sentenced to, to death, um, and that is coming up. Uh, that is supposed to come up uh, November sixteenth, twenty twenty three. So actually, he's got uh, he's got two years to try and get. And I think that's probably one of the things that, that you know that, that made me feel a greater sense of urgency. Um, after having read his book and under, understanding exactly how he got in that position and how con- incredibly unfair it is that this man will be put to death um, again. I mean, there are so many cases of this, um, but this is one that struck me um, because I, I began to have a, a relationship with him. I, I started to to speak with him on a regular basis. Um, and we started uh, you know, we, we, we have a lot in common. you know, we, we have a lot of uh, we, we laugh a lot, we talk a lot, and uh, he's a very wise man. He's done a lot of a lot of reading, um, and uh, you know we, we have great conversations. and it, it just occurred to me at one point, as I was beginning to put together the idea for, for a, um, a podcast, that I would have him as a guest on my show. Well, we did that, and it was so successful. And and uh, so so riveting and and um, in, uh, in gratifying for me emotionally, and I think other people kind of felt the same way. That I thought, well, you know, why just have him as a guest? You know, he just he might as well be a, a co-host. We might as well do this together. And uh, that was the that was the seed, and that was the beginning of, um, of of pieces of a man, the podcast.
0: And if people want to learn more about Keith Lamar's case, they can go to keithlamar.org dot org, and we'll include. A link to that, Brian. We're going to wrap. I've kept you away over time, um, so I just want to ask you any, any words you want to leave us with as we uh, as we close this out.
1: Oh wow, <laughs> that's heavy. There's how no... people can
0: follow you, you know, how people oh, can follow yeah. your work. Okay.
1: <laughs> yeah, thank you.
0: Any, or anything, or anything I else. Can't let me
1: go I, down that road, man.
0: <laughs> no, any, or or anything, anything you want to tell us? I just want to.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah. So y- you know, thank you. Um. I want to thank everybody who you know has supported me in this in this journey, this uh this fifty year journey from from pieces of a man to JID zero uh, zero eight. You can you can follow me on Instagram at Brian Jackson double underscore that's two underscores Jackson Brian uh, double underscore Jackson same as on same on Twitter on uh, Facebook it's the official Brian Jackson and my website is um, on Um yeah, I guess that's uh, I guess it's it. Thank you very much Aaron. I really appreciate you uh, having me on this on this uh, on this show.
0: Brian Jackson it's a real honor to speak to you multi-instrumentalist partner with gil scott heron in a legendary series of albums in the 1970s his latest album is out now on jazz is dead brian jackson thanks so much
1: yes sir thank you take care